First John chapter two, beginning in verse 18, John writes, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the antichrist is coming, even now many antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that none of them were of us, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also, remember the great theme of the book. It's fellowship. Fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. The reason why, again, I repeat the theme over and over again is I'm hoping that when the cultist comes at your door, when the Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, when the Mormon knocks on your door, when you're around the family table and people are asking you questions about the Bible and about what it says, that you'll be able to know the central theme of every book in the Bible that we study. By the way, I've never met a Jehovah's Witness who has ever come to my, my door. And I, I, I've known a few and asked them, how many books are in the Bible? And they'll say 66. And I'll say, can you name the theme of just one of those books? Not two of the books or, or three of the books, just one of the books. You know how many Jehovah's Witnesses have been able to answer me correctly? Zero. You want to know why? Because the theme doesn't matter to them. The context doesn't matter. That's what you're going to discover, that there's two kinds of Bible students. Those that actually care what it's saying, and those who actually don't care what it's saying. Remember what John has done in the epistle that we've been studying. He has given us three broad tests to determine whether or not we're in genuine fellowship with the Lord and with each other. He's given us a test of obedience in chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to chapter 2, verse 6. The test of love in chapter 2, verses 7 through 17. And now the test of truth in chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. So we begin to discover something about being a Christian, that it isn't just simply about what you believe, but it's also going to include how you act in response to what the Bible says and whether or not you're able to affirm the truth. How does God reveal himself? According to the Bible, God has revealed himself in nature, but he's also revealed himself in the word of God and he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 17, verse 17, when Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, he says to the Father, your word is truth. 
God reveals himself by his spirit, by his son, by his word. John wants us to know that we can't believe lies about God and be in fellowship with God. Does that make sense to you? We cannot believe lies about God and be in fellowship with God. It's important that you understand something. No one knows everything about everything and no one knows everything about God. When John says that we not believe lies about God, he's focusing on the fact that you should be able to believe everything that he said about himself and everything that he said about his son Jesus and everything that he said about the Spirit. Now John warns about antichrists in verse 18. He reveals the antichrist's origins in verse 19. He tells us how to recognize them. Number one, they've left fellowship with the truth in verse 19. Number two, they deny that Jesus is the Son of God, come in the flesh in verse 22. And number three, they try to mislead, deceive, and seduce believers. We're going to discover that in verse 26. These things, he says, I've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. That might come as a shock and as a surprise to some of you. Because you would wonder, why would someone purposely, maliciously, try to get me to believe the wrong thing? In broad terms, the section will deal with those who deny Christ in verse 18. And then again in verse 22 and 23. Those who desert the church or depart from fellowship in verse 19. Those who deceive the true Christian. We know it's the true Christian because remember where we began in verse 18? Little children. He uses the term little children as an endearment. He's using it as an expression of his love and his affection for everyone that he's talking to and writing to. We need an anointing from the Holy One who will instruct us in the truth. The Spirit of God will use the Word of God to confirm the truth about what he's saying. In the most basic and plain language available, John is going to make it abundantly clear that the Christian who desires to have fellowship with God and fellowship with Christ and fellowship with each other, that we obey the word, that we love God's people, and that we believe the truth. And so I'm hoping that as you begin to think about those things and you go, you mean the Bible wants me to obey the word and love God's people and believe the truth? The answer is yes to all of those. And so in verse 18, look what it says, the arrival of the Antichrist. He says in verse 18, little children, it's the last hour. And as you, you've heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have come by which we know that it is the last hour. Again, the message is to the little children, the true believer. And scholars believe this little epistle 
began life as a letter to the Christ followers in the little town of Ephesus. For those of you who are even somewhat familiar with the Bible or your biblical geography, in the place that's now modern Turkey, as you go south on the Mediterranean, you come to the, the shores, there's Tarsus, and then above that there's Ephesus. And Paul wrote a little letter to them, the, the letter of Ephesians. And he went there and he established a church and he taught there. And then later, later in life, John the apostle would go to Ephesus and he would preach and teach there late in life. Paul taught for at least three years and had warned the Ephesian elders. In, in Acts chapter 20, verse 29 if you're familiar, if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. It says in Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul said, I know full well that false teachers, like vicious wolves, will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some of you will distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. Remember the three years I was with you, my constant watch and care over you, night and day, and the, my many tears for you. This is a Bible teacher and a pastor pleading with a group of people saying, I've come, I've invested my life, I've invested my love. I've told you everything that you need to know to make sure that you have a right relationship with God and that you have a right relationship with Jesus. And then he came to the end of his, of his ministry and he said, look, I'm going to leave you, but there are going to be people who are going to try to deceive you. And the prediction came true. Both Paul and now years afterwards, John knows that it's necessary that the people who are reading this letter and the people who are living in Ephesus are able to recognize the false teacher and then discern the false teaching. Paul labored and gave them healthy, helpful, honest instruction. And so when he says little children, it's the last hour. That expression, the last hour, appears only here in the Greek New Testament. Some have suggested it refers to the last days or the end times. And I think that there's a certain element of truth to that. He says, it's the last hour. When did the last hour begin? It would appear that it, would, it began the moment that Jesus was crucified, he was killed and he was placed in a tomb and then he stayed in that tomb and his body came back to life on resurrection morning, the morning that Jesus rose from the dead, the first day of the last hour began. And the last hour will continue till the moment that Jesus literally, physically, bodily, returns. The early church believed the end of all things is near. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7. The darkness is past. The true light now shines, John just wrote in, in, in 1 John chapter 2 verse 8. Both Peter and Paul and John 
affirmed that all of the events in human history that began in the book of Genesis and continued through the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of human history that led up to Jesus, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus, all of human history was pointing to that seminal event. And now John says, the Antichrist who is coming And the Antichrists who have come. And by the way, the term Antichristos is a transliteration of the exact Greek word that is used in the text. The term Antichrist is used exclusively by John. Paul, Peter, and the rest of the Bible writers don't use that term. John will use it here in verse 18. He'll use it again in verse 22. He'll use it again in chapter 4, verse 3. He'll use it again in the second epistle of John in chapter 1, verse 27. And the word antichrist describes three things depending on the context. Number one, a spirit in the world that opposes or denies Christ. So when some people will speak of the Antichrist spirit, they're talking about any person, any human being, or any angelic being for that matter, any supernatural being that opposes Jesus, denies Jesus, denies the gospel of Jesus. Number two, it can mean the false teachers who embody that spirit. And number three, it can mean a person who will head up the final rebellion against Christ. A very specific person who will appear in the future. Who will embody, if you will, what it means to oppose and deny Christ and seek to dominate the world. So the spirit of Antichrist has been in the world ever since the world began. In Genesis chapter 3. As a matter of fact, if you turn in 1 John to chapter 4, in verse 3, it says, And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now already in the world. According to the Bible, at the very beginning of the Bible, Satan declared war against God, against God's Messiah, against God's plan, and against God's purposes. All of the Bible is an unfolding of that drama. The drama of God wanting to bring about the promise that he's made, and Satan opposing the promise. And so the spirit of Antichrist is every false doctrine, every religious substitute that seeks to undermine or displace Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace. The prefix anti has a dual meaning in the Greek language, also in the Italian language, by the way. It can mean against or it can mean Instead of, if you've ever gone to an Italian restaurant, have you ever ordered antipasto? Antipasto isn't 
a dish that's against spaghetti. Antipasto is the dish that comes before the spaghetti. And so anti can mean instead of. It can mean before. It can mean against, depending on the context. Therefore, it can mean against Christ or instead of Christ. Now, I want you to think about that. Because every human philosophy and every satanic religion and all man-made wisdom that suggests that you believe and embrace something other than Jesus and other than the gospel becomes antichrist. Satan, in his frenzy, is fighting Jesus. He's fighting the eternal truth. Satan is substituting his counterfeits for the reality that can only be found in the person of the Lord Jesus. And so as we study the Bible and we begin to understand that the Bible offers you love and hope and grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration with God and fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. Satan is at hard at work making sure that none of that happens. So John mentions the future coming of the Antichrist. He says, little children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, it's in the future tense. The present false teachers are simply sneak previews of the coming man of sin, who Jesus refers to as the son of perdition. So where did the readers of John hear about the coming of the man of sin? Remember in the text itself, it says, hey, it's the last hour, and you've already heard that the Antichrist is coming. Where in the world did they hear this from? I'm going to suggest to you, that Paul, who wrote the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 10, as he outlines this, a, a, a reflection, if you will, on the Antichrist, Paul calls him the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. He's called the son of perdition in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. He's called the wicked one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. Daniel, the, the, the prophet, called him the little horn in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. The willful king in Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. John in the book of Revelation which I believe with all my heart was written before this letter of 1st John calls him the beast in chapter 11 verse 7 the future leader will attempt to destroy Israel in Revelation chapter 12. He will attempt to destroy the false religious citizen so that he can have all of the people and all of the, the worship to himself unhindered in Revelation chapter 17. The Bible says that he'll be finally crushed by Jesus in Revelation chapter 19. The Bible says that this Antichrist will be the first creature thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 19 verse 20. So Daniel had spoken of him. Paul had spoken of him. John had earlier written about him. And this has caused people to make, I think, a very serious mistake. And that is they look for the Antichrist rather than Jesus Christ. 
Over the years, I've been on the radio since the, in the 1970s, in the 1980s, in the 1990s, in the year 2000. In every decade, I've been asked the question, well, do you think Richard Nixon is the Antichrist? Do you think Ronald Reagan is the Antichrist? Do you think George Bush is the Antichrist? Most recently, people have asked me, do you think that this president is the Antichrist? And I said, i got to be honest with you. According to the book of Daniel, he is a religious genius. He's a political genius. He's an intellectual genius. He's a military genius. This president just simply doesn't qualify. He doesn't fit the description that the Bible gives. Now remember, there's a difference between Antichrist, those who oppose Christ, and the Antichrist. The Antichrist is that human being who will be a manifestation of Satan, if you will, and will seek to fulfill the satanic plan. Jesus warned about the teachers and false prophets in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24. Jesus said that they would come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they would be ravenous wolves in Matthew 7, 15. The New Testament is filled with warnings about people who practice sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 5, false teachers in Galatians chapter 1, enemies of Christ in Philippians chapter 3. The church at Colossae, there were heresies of rationalism and ceremonialism and occultism and a what does all of this mean? The church in Colossae, the church in Philippi, the church in Corinth were already contaminated by false teachers. And so Jesus, and then Paul, and then John would address the problem. The false teachers had grown in number, they grew in influence. In this last hour, these false teachers who pretend to be Christ followers seduce the weak and the gullible. And so here's the deal. We're not to fear them. We're not to be afraid of them. And the way that you can make that fear go away is to, to be deeply rooted and grounded in the word of God. And in the truth of God. The Bible teaches us the, the truth and warns us about deception. And so this is why the Bible taught simply and carefully and faithfully serves as one of the great protections so that you don't have to worry about being ripped off or taken advantage of. I had a Jehovah's Witness come to my door one day, and he says, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. And I go, oh, you're a follower of Charles Taze Russell. He goes, well, the Watchtower and Tract Society was founded by Charles Taze Russell. I go, do you believe he was a prophet? And he said, well, not everything he said was true. And I said, well, what, what did he say exactly that was false? And he looks down and he goes, I probably shouldn't have said that. You see, in order for you to be able to tell the truth, you have to be able to know the truth. False teachers have been with us since the beginning of the church. The false teacher denies that Jesus is Christ 
in verse 22. That Jesus is God's son in verse 23. That Jesus is God incarnate in human flesh in chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And later in 2 John chapter 1, verse 7, he's going to repeat it. He says that the people who don't tell you the truth about God the Father and God the Son, he uses some fairly harsh language to describe them. He calls them liars and deceivers. And since Satan opposes Jesus and the truth, it makes perfect sense that Satan's servants corrupt the truth, distort the truth, Deny the true nature of Jesus, the true mission of Jesus, the true gospel of Jesus. And so the apostles of the Antichrist in verse 19, look what he does. He gives you a clue. In verse 19, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest or known or revealed or exposed that none of them were of us. The reason why this verse right here in chapter 2, verse 19, this is such an important verse. This is John's first statement about those who have left the fellowship, who have abandoned the church, who've walked away. Now think about this. From fellowship with him. And fellowship with the early church. Paul told Timothy about those who would depart from the faith in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. Those who have a form of godliness in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He talks about this guy named Demas. And he calls him the forsaker in 2 Timothy chapter 4.10. It says he's forsaken us. He's forsaken the faith. He's abandoned us. It would appear that Paul was right. The false prophets, the false teachers, the antichrists didn't originate outside of the church. They originated within the church. Again, remember what we already talked about in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. In what sense? They'll be a part of the friendship. They'll be a part of the fellowship. They'll be a part of the church. And then they'll invite you that maybe the Bible wasn't true after all. That maybe what the Bible says wasn't true after all about God, about Jesus, about salvation, about the past, about the future. The Antichrists come from two places, within the church and outside of the church. And look who they, they target. The unbeliever? The sinner? It would appear that the first target is you. That's who the cults are looking for. They're looking for you. 
And by the way, about 85% of every Jehovah's Witness, every Mormon, every Christian scientist, every single person who's involved in a cult, you know where they began their life? Usually it was in a Bible-believing church. They started off life as Baptists. They started life off as Methodists or Presbyterians. They started life off as people who embraced real, essential, biblical Christianity. The people left the church and became promoters of false teachings about Jesus. And when their teaching was rejected by the leaders of the church, they left. John explains, quote, For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. This is John's explanation. John explains... They were never really part of the fellowship. The verse reminds us that Christians remain in fellowship and then they persevere in faith. How many people have you met who said, you know, I used to go to church. I used to believe the Bible. I used to pray. I used to do stuff with Christians and with Christianity. Well, what do you do now? Oh, I don't believe that stuff anymore. Well, tell me what it is again that you used to believe. Well, I used to believe that the Bible is true, and I used to believe that Jesus is the Lord, but I don't believe that anymore. The verse, again, reminds us the Christian remains in fellowship, perseveres in faith. Remember the theme of the book. You can have fellowship with God. On what basis? On the basis that God has ordained through Jesus Christ the Lord. You can have fellowship with each other. On what basis? On the basis that God has ordained. So what happens to those who abandon their allegiance to Christ and biblical Christianity? John argues they never really belonged in the first place. Some people hear the truth. They even taste the truth. But they never accept the truth in their heart. They never allow the truth to reign inside of their heart and their thinking and their life. So that when persecution comes, when suffering comes, when doubt comes, when difficulty comes, they say goodbye. Well, my wife left me, my husband left me, my child died, this happened, that happened, this happened, that. I used to believe in a God who cared, but I don't believe that anymore. What do you believe? Many of them will say, I don't know what to believe. Apostates abandon the church. And if they don't abandon the church, then they stay in the church and infect the church until apostasy and unbelief and wickedness and false doctrine become a part of their church. The person who rejects church and Christian fellowship is suspect. The person who says, you know what, dude, I can worship God. I don't have to be at church. I can worship God on the golf course. The person who worships God on the the golf course isn't really worshiping God. They're worshiping the green. They're worshiping the clubs. They're worshiping the ball. They're worshiping the game. Some Christians desert the church physically. 
Some desert it morally. Some decide to stay in the church. They decide to stay in the church, but then they decide that drinking and drugging and sexual immorality, they decide that everything that the Bible says, well, you know what? You're a Christian and you know and love the Lord Jesus and your life has changed and your mind has changed and, and everything's changed and then you discover something that really very little has changed or nothing has changed at all. But you like going to church and you like, God knows why you would want to listen to this message. But all of a sudden, you decide that if you're not going to abandon the church physically or you decide to abandon the church morally or you decide to abandon the church intellectually, you profess to know Christ, you embrace the fundamentals or the essentials of the faith, but then you begin to ask questions. And don't get me wrong, I love questions. I'm happy to answer questions. Well, why do Christians believe this? And why do Christians believe that? And, and why do, how important is it that, to believe that Jesus is one person with two natures? How important is it to believe that he was born of a virgin? How important is it that he lived a sinless life? How important is it that he died on the cross for my sin? How important is it to believe that he physically rose from the dead? How important is it to believe that he ascended into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father? How important is it that, to believe that he's really going to come back? And so they'll pinpoint a particular thing and then they'll try and make that thing less sure or less real. Some of these people become leaders in the church. Some of these people actually become pastors in the church. And they start teaching from a pulpit like I'm teaching from. That the Bible isn't exactly true. That sexual immorality, well, there's exceptions to it. True believers remain loyal in their heart in the midst of pain, heartache, persecution, challenges. In the end, the truth of what you believe will come out. Something will happen to you and it will press against you and it will confirm what it is that you truly believe. I'm going to suggest to you that this is in part what John is saying. The moment the person says, I'm leaving John, and I'm leaving John's church, and I'm leaving fellowship with John because I don't embrace what John believes, and I don't embrace what the apostles believe, and I don't embrace what, what the early church leaves. Perhaps the day of the apostate or, or the make-believer becomes known the moment that they walk out the door and they never come back, but sometimes it doesn't always appear that way. Sometimes we won't know the truth until the day of judgment because they don't necessarily leave the church. They don't physically walk out. They morally walk out and intellectually walk out. 
And so he talks about the apostasy of the Antichrist. Look at what it says in verse 20. But this is the protection. But you have an anointing from the Holy One. And you know all things. John is warning about Antichrist. But as he warns about the Antichrist, the one who's coming, the ones who are here, as he warns about the false teachers, he also offers protections. And what are those protections? John says, we have the Savior's anointing. And we have the truth. The Savior's anointing in verse 20. The truth in verse 21. By the way, the word anointing in the Greek is the verb chrisma. You probably know that word. Chrisma. Anointing. There's words that are related to it, like charis, which is gift, or charismatic, or which is a series of gifts. Chrisma is a reference to the ritual, the religious ritual of pouring oil on a person's head. Oil was used in the consecration in the ancient Jewish Old Testament. They would pour oil on the top of a king's head or they would anoint a servant for service. And that's what would happen in the Old Testament when you see people like Samuel pouring oil on the head of David or pouring oil um, over a prophet's head or over David, like it's in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The oil becomes a type and a picture, a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so it says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. That expression, you know all things, is based on a reading of the Greek text, panta, which is the neuter plural, accusative. And that's not going to mean a whole lot to you. But it's found in many manuscripts. In two fourth century manuscripts, it says pantes which is the nominative plural, masculine. What does all of that mean? I think what it means is that if the other manuscript is correct, the text probably reads, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. Not that you know all things, but you all know. The reason why I think it probably means that is because if verse 20 is literally true, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things, do you, anyone here know all things? Who here knows the exact circumference of the universe? Oh, no one. Who knows what's beyond the universe? Who knows whether or not string theory is true and there are multiple interdimensional realities? No hands. Have you ever watched Jeopardy and you get the category, I'll take things that nobody knows for 200. So I don't think that it means know all things unless there's this possibility that what John is saying is you know all things that pertain to salvation. In other words, you know everything that you need to know to know how to have your sins forgiven. You know everything that you need to know. 
in order to experience what it means to have your sins forgiven and to believe that Jesus is the Lord, to know that you have life and love and forgiveness and hope and a future. It either means that, if that's the case, it would mean you know everything you need to know in order to be saved, but if it means what I think it means, I think that it could be translated, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know the truth. In what sense? You know the truth about Jesus. You know the truth about what the gospel says. You know the truth about how he came from the Father. You know the truth about how he was born of a virgin. You know the truth about what all the gospel stories have reiterated over and over and over again. It's probably best to translate the verse, you all know. And so what is this anointing from the Holy One? I think it's the Holy Spirit who teaches us the truth by the word of God. The word anointing is another word for unction, for service. But remember in the Old Testament, the anointing was selective. The oil was only poured on kings. It was only poured on prophets. The unction for knowing what's right from wrong, good from evil, truth, from error is a general privilege that belongs to everyone in the body of Christ. That's what I think that it means. And and in order to understand what it means, I think you have to understand the context. In John's day, there were false teachers, people who were called Gnostics. These false teachers would use two two words to describe their experience with God. They would use the word knowledge, which is gnosis, where you get the word Gnostic. And then they would use the word unction or anointing or what John uses, this exact word, chrisma. In other words, the false teachers and the false prophets would say, I have an anointing from God. I have a supernatural revelation from God. I have a pipeline to God. I know mysteries that nobody else knows. And so John is going to confront it head on. They claim to have a special anointing, a unique or an exclusive knowledge. They claimed a special connection with God and that they were called to live on a higher level than everyone around them. That the most important thing wasn't just simply what the Bible said about God or what the apostles said about God. It's what they said about God. Does that sound at all even a little bit familiar to you? Where where do you go to church? Calvary. What do you do at Calvary? Gino teaches the Bible. (laughs) Is that all? You know, at my church... We have fairy dust and gold fillings and heebie-jeebies and there's all kinds of crazy weird things that happen. And that's good. Why? Here's my point. When John says, these are his words, but 
you have an anointing. Remember I talked about the big book that I'm working on? I'm calling it Big Butts in the Bible. This, this is going to have a separate chapter. In what sense? John says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One. In what sense? All true Christians know God. All true Christians experience the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of their heart. All true Christians have received the Spirit of God when they're born again by the Word of God and because they believe the truth about God, because they've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, they can recognize a lie. You see, that's the wonderful thing about the truth. The moment you know the truth, you can say, you know, when somebody tells you a lie, you can go, you know, that's not exactly true what you just said. And that's the point. John is saying that true Christians can understand the truth by God's word and God's Holy Spirit. They're capable of discernment. William Tyndale, who really authored the very first English Bible, translating it, if you will, didn't author it. He wrote, quote, you are not anointed with oil in your bodies, but with the spirit of Christ in your souls. Which spirit teaches you all truth in Christ? Taketh you to judge what is a lie and what is truth and to know Christ from antichrist. That's exactly right. Question. Are all lies bad? The answer is yes. But some lies do greater damage than others. And so here's what John is suggesting. The biggest lie, the biggest lie, the biggest whopper, if you will. The biggest lie is to deny the true identity of Jesus, the nature of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the salvation that Jesus has wrought. That's the biggest lie. You've heard me say it over and over again. If you're wrong about Jesus, it doesn't really matter what you're right about. Can you be wrong about Jesus and have a right view of God and a right view of salvation and a right view of the future? The, according to the Bible, the answer is no. In John's gospel, we're told in John chapter 14, verse 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you, unquote. John, now think about where we've come from. John contrasts light and darkness, chapter one, verse five. The new command and the old command, chapter two, verse seven. Loving the Father, loving the world, chapter 2, verse 15. Christ and Antichrist, chapter 2, verse 18. Now, truth and lies, verses 20 and 21. This is fairly stark. John writes, I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. So what is John saying? Those who are anointed by the Holy Spirit, verse 20, know the truth about the Father, know the truth about the Son, 
and are able to discern when someone misrepresents the father or misrepresents the son. John knows that the standard of truth is found in God's nature and God's son and God's spirit and God's word. The false teachers insisted that the saints needed instruction that wasn't found in the revelation of God or the word of God or the apostles' teaching. They needed something more. They needed something mystical. They needed something subjective. They needed a burning in their bosom. They needed fire in their intestines. You know, when the cultist knocks on your door and invites you to have fire in the intestines, just say, look, I'll give you a gift certificate to Hacienda and just have some of the green chili and the the chili. You'll have plenty of fire in your intestines. But fire in the intestines is not a good source of information about the real nature of God and the real nature of Jesus. The false teachers were telling lies. But the believers who were grounded in the truth could recognize when something wasn't true. And so John says, no lie is of the truth. I want you to think about that statement for just a moment. No lie is of the truth. Can something be simultaneously true and a lie at the same time? According to John, the answer is no. It can't be both A and non-A. You know, Mortimer Adler, the great philosopher and editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica, wrote that truth, in order to be true, has to have two characteristics. It has to be immutable, which means not subject to change, and incorrigible, which means not subject to perfection. In other words, the qualities of truth means it has to be always true not subject to change, not subject to perfection. It is true always, every time, everywhere. You know what? I've discovered that there are only four things that I can think of that are true. Absolutely, unequivocally, undeniably. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But what do you suppose the fourth thing is? not subject to change, not subject to perfection. It will never change, and it will never be better or worse. It will always be the same. I don't think it's the church, but that's a good guess. I'm going to suggest to you that it is everything that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit say. The moment the Father says it, is it true or not? The moment the Son says it, True or not? The moment that the Holy Spirit imparts the information, true or not? Everything the Father says, everything the Son says, everything the Spirit says, this is true and can't be a lie. The believers refused to follow the false teachers. I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes who said, sin has many tools, But a lie is the handle 
which fits them all. Years ago, Clinton aide George Stephanopoulos on Larry King Live said this remarkable statement. He said, quote, the president has kept all the promises he intends to keep. I thought, isn't that interesting? The president has kept all of the promises that he intends to keep. Which are the promises that God intends to keep? All of them. And so in verse 22, it says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He's the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Who is a liar? It's a strong word. Augustine wrote, quote, A lie consists in speaking a falsehood with the intention of deceiving. I'm so grateful for that definition. Because I'd like to think that I didn't lie about saying that Christmas is 14 days away. When I said it, I actually believed it was true. And I didn't say it for the purpose of deceiving people into thinking that they had more shopping days than they really had. A lie consists in speaking a falsehood with the intention of deceiving. The great truth of the Bible... The great truth of the Bible is that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. Mormons believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. The followers of Charles Taze Russell, the the Watchtower and Tract Society, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that Jesus is the archangel Michael. Those in Islam believe that Jesus is a prophet, a great prophet, and a great man. Cult groups gravitate to either denying the humanity of Jesus or the divinity of Jesus. Everything that the Bible teaches about Jesus is true. And Calvin is really insightful here. He says, quote, I readily agree with the ancients who thought that Serenthus and Carpocrates are here referred to. But the denial of Christ extends much further. What Calvin is basically speaking of, that it was his belief that John the Apostle is writing about a pernicious false prophet who repeatedly made the claim that Jesus wasn't really God. Calvin writes, but the denial of Christ extends much further, for it's not enough to confess in one word that Jesus is the Christ, but he must be acknowledged to be such as the Father offers him with the name of God, but despoiled him of his eternal divinity. Martian dreamed he was a mere phantom. Sibelius imagined that he differed in nothing from the Father. This is, by the way, the modern oneness Pentecostal movement. It's called Sabalianism or oneness Pentecostalism. In Sabalianism or oneness Pentecostals, they believe that the Father is the Son and is the Spirit. The oneness Pentecostal affirms the unity of God but disaffirms the personhood of the Father, the personhood of the Son, and the personhood of the Spirit. Again, Calvin, all these denied the Son of God for none of them really acknowledged the whole Christ but adulterated the truth about him so far as they were able and made for themselves an idol instead of a Christ. 
The reason why all of this becomes important to you is that when your Jehovah's Witness friend, your Mormon friend, your Christian scientist friend, your friend says to you, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. On the surface, that sounds like a wonderful thing to believe, but you have to go one step further. You have to say to them, do you believe what the Bible teaches Concerning everything about the nature of Jesus. Do you believe that he's one person with two natures? That he's completely God and that he's completely human. And neither his godness or his humanity informs the other one. He is a unique being. And that he had to be this unique being in order to save you. Because the Mormon will gladly tell you that Jesus is Christ. The Jehovah's Witness will gladly tell you that Jesus is Christ. But what do they mean by that? And so in verse 23, when he says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Major religions claim that they know God and they'll even give Jesus some sort of divine status. Islam says that Jesus is a prophet, but not the literal son of God. They deny the son. If you go with me to Jerusalem and you see the mosque that's on the Temple Mount, in Arabic script on the mosque it reads, there is no God but Allah and his prophet is Muhammad and he has no son. Do you know what that means? They deny the son. Jehovah's Witnesses say, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. Whoever denies the son does not have the father. You're not even a Jehovah's Witness. Because you can't have the father unless you have the son. In what sense? What John is saying is, you have to believe and be able to say, That everything that the Father says about the Son is true. Everything that the Son says about himself is true. You cannot have a wrong view of Jesus and a right relationship with the Father. And you might be thinking, so are you telling me that Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Mormons, they're all going to hell? Because they don't believe the way you believe? No, they're, they're going to hell because they're sinners in need of a savior. And I was going to hell. Not because of what I believed or didn't believe. I was going to hell because I was a sinner. And the only way for me to avoid hell is to enter into a right relationship with God through Christ. I have to believe what the Bible says about Jesus. I have to believe what the Father says about Jesus. I have to believe what Jesus says about Jesus. And then now I have to believe what John says about Jesus. Here's what John is basically saying. Denying Jesus means denying God. And now we begin to understand What Jesus meant in John chapter 14 when he said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. 
And no one, no Hindu, no Buddhist, no Muslim, no Mormon, no atheist, no skeptic, no philosopher, no king, can come to the Father except by me. You know what John is saying? There's a true life and there's a false life. The antichrists who are here invite you to a life that's false. And there's an antichrist who's coming who will invite the whole world to embrace a notion which they already find totally acceptable. That there's life apart from God, apart from Christ, and apart from the gospel. You know, a nurse in Denver gave a drip solution to a patient and she thought that she gave him the right drip solution and the patient died. A man in a house heard a noise in the kitchen and decided a burglar was trying to rob him. And he got out his gun and he shot the intruder And the intruder turned out to be his daughter. She was unable to sleep and she went down into the kitchen to get a late night snack. The nurse was completely, sincerely convinced that she was helping this man. The other man thought for sure that he was being violated. And that he had to protect himself. They both were completely and sincerely convinced that they were right. Just like I was sincerely convinced that I was right today. And I was wrong. Is it possible to be sincerely wrong? That's right. Be bold in what you stand for but be careful what you fall for. Now you know about antichrists and the antichrist. You know that something can't be true and false at the same time in exactly the same way. What the Father says about Jesus is true. What Jesus says about himself is true. What the Holy Spirit says about Jesus is true. And now, we've been warned. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time. And Lord, we pray that we could use this information in real ways. That Lord, when we ask our family, our friends, our neighbors, the co-workers, tell me what you believe about God. Tell me what you believe about Jesus. Tell me what you believe about sin. Tell me what you believe about salvation. That, Lord, we would be willing to listen to what they have to say. And, Lord, we pray that we would ask the most disturbing question of all. What if what you believed wasn't true? Would you want to know? Can you imagine if 
the nurse could have been asked, I know you believe that this is medicine, but what if it's not? Are you willing to just investigate? Are you willing to think carefully, long and hard, who is that person in your home before you pull the trigger? It makes perfect sense that we would want to know, that we would really want to know, is Jesus who he says he is? Is Jesus who the Father says he is? And is Jesus who John says he is? And so, Lord, again, we pray that you would awaken in our hearts a desire to know the truth, to love the truth, and to live the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.